Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. You're on Team Human, a growing sensibility that we are and have always been in this thing together. Connection is power and sharing is resilience. There's one thing going on here, one being with many faces. You are not alone. I'm Douglas Rushkoff. I'm here with you, and we're both on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today... From Polarization, Extremism, and Radicalization Innovation Lab at American University, my former student and now colleague and mentor, Brian Hughes. ISIS, the far right, neo-Nazis, all of these young men are on the search for an uncastrated father, right? A, A wholly powerful, wholly potent male figure. Brian will share with us the underlying drive fueling so much of today's more violent extremism, as well as how we can mitigate some of its impact. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Team Human is entirely listener-sponsored, and this pandemic has brought out the generosity in many of you. Thanks to everyone for supporting this show. You, too, can go to teamhuman.fm, click on support, and become a subscribing member of the show. Get free stuff and complimentary admission to Team Human events once they start up again. Join the ranks of members, including Matthias Here, Michael O'Brien, Sarah Greenbaum, and Susan Connor. Thanks for being on Team Human. You can read the Team Human Manifesto, my regular writing, and hear archived episodes at medium.com slash team human. There's also a link on the top of that page for the big feature pieces I've been writing for Medium's magazine, Jen. And of course, you can get to everything from teamhuman.fm. Well, a lot of people have been getting sad about this virus and thinking about what it means about everything and everyone. There's a whole lot of 
people saying and writing that, you know, we are the virus. We human beings are the virus. And this is the earth fighting back against us for destroying her. And then they see the coyotes and deer and antelopes and bears and things coming out of the woods and walking around in the streets and saying, look, this is nature coming back. Now that, you know, now that it's fought back this human infection. And I understand that model. I I understand how things can look that way. But I don't see it that way. You know, I see us as part of nature, as part of the world, and that this virus is really a collective virus to the human organism. You know, I don't look at that as a good thing, you know, not at all. But it reminds me of how we get sick in real life as individuals, how we get run down from too much work, too much stress, and no downtime, no time for family and friends, not enough laughter. You know, people who do shift work where you work a couple of days and you work a couple of nights, you know, they get cancer at greater rates than people who have normal shifts. So here we are working day, working night. We don't really know what the difference is anymore. And we, you know, you start taking a coffee or speed to keep you going. And you get the warnings, you get bad sleep, you get bad moods, you have less satisfaction, less concentration, your relationships start to decline. There's warning signs. You start feeling run down, you get bloodshot eyes, your stomach doesn't really feel right, you don't digest your food quite right, you get headaches, and then Advil stops working, and then something else stressful hits, and bam, you get sick. Now, does that mean that germs and viruses aren't real? That the illness is entirely psychosomatic? Of course not. But bacteria or viruses, they're just the figure. You know, the bacteria, the virus, it's always there or something like it is. The infection is what we call opportunistic. You know, more important... It's a last gasp effort by your body to resist the greater environmental stresses. It's the last thing you do. You get sick before either withdrawing from the stressors or collapsing altogether. And I've begun to see the COVID virus this way. I know it's not a pretty thought, but what if this virus is itself our last gasp resistance to techno-capitalism? No, it's not a good thing in itself. It's more like the virus is more like like the Trump phenomenon. It's a weapon generated by life itself against the repression and exploitation of humanity by the market, by technology, and all the other forces of death and destruction. We, collectively, we're like a person working too hard and for so little nourishment in return that we had to take steroids to keep going. The market, it demanded growth from us, collectively. More growth so that shareholders could passively extract more value from us. But they were taking our jobs and our social safety nets away at the same time. We need to work more while earning less, patching together an income from three or four different gig jobs. 
The only reason things needed to keep accelerating was to feed the beast of interest-based central currency, the only ones who need the economy to keep growing. And for us to keep accelerating and working harder are the bankers and the shareholders, the people who are not on the ground working or creating value at all. But those of us who are on the ground, we've got no way to push back, no way to slow the economy. This strange, accelerating economy based in the U.S.-China tech slavery production axis. China keeps making more tech cheap enough for Americans to keep deploying more surveillance and disaster capitalism on its own citizens. The only way we could slow down the economy was to get good and sick, like the person whose body just can't take any more work and stress, the body gets sick. It says no more. That's what our collective body is doing. No, the transition of China from a farming nation to an urban slave metropolis doesn't work. Doesn't work for them either. Those colossal wet markets where hundreds of species of living and dead animals fester all over each other, that's not some cultural tradition. It's not racist or nationalist to call that out for what it is. It's an artifact of rapid industrial expansion. And the transition of America from a worker craftsperson economy to one of global digital extraction, well, that doesn't work either. It has decimated every other aspect of commerce and community. We are dying here. But if our conscious political and social mechanisms aren't capable of arresting this, if we can't elect a Bernie or develop sustainable local economies or even bake bread profitably in a society dominated by the interests of corrupt global supply chains, then our corrective measures are going to come from somewhere else. The subconscious, like Trump, or biology itself, like COVID-19. Remember when you'd get sick and your mom or your partner says, you've been working too hard. I told you to take better care of yourself. Well, that's your body revolting, saying enough, even if it does it in a self-destructive way. Well, in that sense, COVID is our collective body saying enough and trying to do for us what our activism and politics and community organizing have failed to do. Yes, some of us will die. That's how desperate we've become. It's a kamikaze attack of human biology against the systems that threaten our very survival. This is the intervention. You're on Team Human. Our guest today was once my assistant. He helped me put together my book, Present Shock, and then he was my master student in the very first cohort at Queens College, and now he's a PhD candidate at American University, and most important for our purposes, incoming associate director of American University's Polarization, Extremism, and Radicalization Innovation Lab, just so they could spell the acronym PERIL, Brian Hughes. Welcome back to Team Human. Welcome back to Queens College. Thanks, buddy. Glad to have you so here. So happy to be back. So maybe for the benefit of the Team Human audience, tell us, so, so what, have, what have you been doing since you left the Queens College Media Studies program? What are you working on? 
Well, my work had always been looking at political and religious extremism and fringe cultures. And so uh, in the run-up to the 2016 election, but actually for years before that, I, I had been aware of conditions on the far right in the United States. You know, I, I had always been interested in the paleoconservative movement. I'd been aware of a lot of the more fringy neo-Nazi stuff uh, just by following metal and extreme music uh, subgenres and being interested in the occult. And when you say paleo conservative. You don't mean like they're on a special diet. No, I mean uh, it's paleo uh, in opposition to the neoconservatives who are defining the the foreign policy of uh, the George W. Bush years. So neoconservatives are like Wolfowitz and those kind of people. Exactly, Wolfowitz. Um, and a paleoconservative is who? Like Buckley? Like Pat Buchanan. Okay. Pat Buchanan is the quintessential paleoconservative. At, at least that's how it was understood at that time. Right. And, uh, you know, I was interested in uh, reading them uh, to see what was happening in the, the full spectrum of conservatism outside of what, what was dominant. And I just began to notice this strange convergence between, say, the Ron Paul libertarians, the paleoconservatives, these very fringy neo-Nazi pagan types. And then you began to see uh, the incorporation of Chan culture and online trolling and things like that. And so as all this was happening and I was finishing up my master's here at Queens College, uh, I began to follow developments on the far right much more closely. Because even as a, a young, occult-interested, pagan punk kid, uh -huh. there's some, and I had some of that in me too, there's some odd overlap between that and some of these kind of what we're calling paleoconservative cultures that we're looking at. This sort of the 4chan overlaps on the one hand into the world's the kind of psychedelic Robert Anton Wilson sort of world. Yeah. Well, you know, traditional occultism, uh, the, the longer I've looked at it and then the longer I've looked at the far right, especially the older far right from the 20th century, occultism and the old far right go together because occultism is kind of authoritarian and hierarchical and it posits a hierarchy of spirits uh, in the angelic realm down to the infernal realm. Huh. And, you know, there's all the different legions of Satan that you have to memorize if you want to conjure your guardian angel uh, and, and all that kind of thing. And then the Chan stuff, like you said, is really very reflective of that kind of chaos magic uh, style of occultism that really had its heyday in the 80s and 90s. But it's funny you mentioned Robert Anton Wilson. I just find myself coming back to his work more than ever. I read Robert Anton Wilson immediately after college, and I see him as having served a kind of inoculating function for me. I think that young men who are lost and who are kind of adrift and who have a shitty job and who feel somewhat deselected by society, which is definitely how I felt uh, when I immediately left college, they can take a kind of Robert Anton Wilson path into self-exploration and maybe logic and, and learning how to see their life as a field of play that can be explored and can be painful but can also be very rewarding. I mean, that's something people don't always appreciate is that Robert Anton Wilson wrote about suffering too. Right. And for people who 
don't know, Robert Anton Wilson was a 1970s author. He wrote kind of satirical conspiracy theory books like the Illuminatus Trilogy. And most people who talk about the Illuminati are really referring to those books, whether they know it or not. He was a sort of a young colleague of Timothy Leary, and he wrote about, you know, space migration and the planet Sirius. And he was into life extension and uh, what was going to happen to humans after all this. Yeah, life extension, intelligence increase. Uh, I forget what the whole Space acronym migration. Was. Space migration. That was the rest <laughs> of it. Thank you. Yeah. And so you can take that path, which I think is ultimately beneficial and healing and positive and helped set, set me on a better course, you know, after I had graduated and didn't know where to go. Or you could begin to pursue this kind of Jordan Peterson search for uh, a strict punishing daddy figure. And I think that for whatever reason, I think a lot of it has to do with social conditions that are historically and economically driven. But I think young men nowadays are more inclined to take their first step onto that path towards the search for that punishing and strict daddy uh, instead of taking that step towards, you know, the fun the fun buddy uh, figure in, in, in the work of Robert Anton Wilson, who will kind of walk you through these, these hard times in a way that, I don't know, I, I think leads you to expand and open your soul to love and to the, and to the world instead of closing it off through these sort of self-restrictions. I mean, the way you, you're framing it, it's as if you know, well, the, the like the Gamergate guys or the the more extreme sort of the MAGA incel folks, you're thinking that they lack some sort of appropriate initiation into adulthood of some kind so that they they're still searching for an angry father to, to oh, with follow? A, without question. Yeah. I, well, you see this in, you know, some of my early work looked at ISIS. ISIS, the far right, neo-Nazis, all of these young men are on the search for an uncastrated father, right? A, a wholly powerful, wholly potent male figure that they can identify with and on whose behalf they can kind of act in the in the world. And of course, like that doesn't exist. Part of growing up and becoming healthy involves accepting social castration, so to speak. Right. But I understand it's funny, and I don't know if people are going to analyze me. I remember having a dream when I was just got to college. Yeah. But um, I had this dream that I was like in the army or something or the airborne, whatever, and there was this really masculine father figure like colonel or something, and we're on this airplane, and we've got to jump off with our parachutes and stuff, and I'm scared to do it, and he like takes me with like an iron grip and jumps out of the plane with me, and he's like, pull your cord now, pull your cord, boy, you know, and I pull the cord, and it's like, there you go, and I just felt... He looked at me so proud, you know, that I had pulled my cord, but I wouldn't have gotten out if it hadn't been for him. And I remember feeling so elated, you know, and I th it's that when you describe, I hadn't remembered this dream in many, many years, but it's that longing. I remember it was that just for there to be some iron-willed adult fully uncastrated male to take me over the threshold into adulthood. Yeah. 
Wow, that was that was powerful. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's exactly. And, and listen to when you know that happened to you. You said in college. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, that you're out of the house. You know, your dad isn't looking over your shoulder saying, oh, you know, you're late. You broke your curfew. <laughs> uh, and then you know, for some people, college can either be this bacchanalia that's sort of a a, a period of Oedipal uh, rebellion. That's certainly the case for me. But then once you're out into the world, you know, that has to end. Um, I mean, so, your Animal House days right, have to yeah, end. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, one way or another, one way or another, you need to find a way to incorporate, I don't know, that paternal voice in a way that's healthy. Um, and I think that what we see with a lot of the far right is young men who are, you know, attempting to find that paternal voice in their life. It's what Lacan calls the name of the father. And for a variety of reasons, selecting badly. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you know, we look at digital uh, technology, you and me, and one of the things you can't ignore is the role of um, the algorithm and served up content and uh, targeted advertising and all those kinds of things and the way that they tend to privilege bad feelings, right? Outrage is engagement. Anger is engagement. Thoughtfulness isn't really engagement. Play isn't really engagement. It's kind of the opposite. It's it, it's dilettantism in a way that's, I think, good, especially for young people, but it's bad. It's bad for brand loyalty. And so now we've got dangerous brands, let's call them that, most empowered in a space that's really tilted towards the most sensational. Yeah. And young men, more than young women, falling prey to this? I think so. I, you know, I, I don't want to essentialize, but young men, for whatever reasons of nature and nurture, have different psychic needs than young women. They have different positions in, in society and expectations that are placed on them. Uh, and so I think, yeah, I think there, there is a uniquely male-coded way of going about this crisis. But d- don't get me wrong. Uh, there are plenty of women in extremist circles. Right. Women constitute a very important and influential column on the far right, um, um, and even in some some Islamist groups. But right now it feels as if, and maybe this is just the media that I'm watching, it feels as if we're being told that, you know, the white men's day is done, you know, and even if we have to have another white male president, you know, one more time. I mean, it's a tricky environment in which to be a white male. And I know people who aren't white males are thinking, oh, no, you're still totally entitled and all that. And maybe, but... I'm certainly in an environment like this at Queens College. I mean, being a white male is being guilty of like I'm a representative of the, of the hegemony or something. And, you know, when you hear we're going to hire a teacher, oh, no, can't hire them. There's a white male. I guess we could not hire any. And that's OK. And I understand maybe another five or 10 years don't hire any more, you know, and let there be none and then hire a first one again. But what's the white male to do in a society that's trying to compensate for his domination. Well, I think that, you know, you get at a really key issue, right, that that is describing our moment of crisis that has kind of defined and characterized this long 2016 that has lasted uh-huh. five or six years now. And, and what that is, is the ongoing difficulty to reconcile issues of identity, which are tied to real historical and structural conditions of oppression, sexism, uh, racism, the whole Megillah. While on the other hand, 
trying to discover new forms of universality because you have to have universality in order to have solidarity and in order to overcome or ameliorate or um, give reparations to those historical wrongs there has to be a sense of solidarity rather than a sense of conflict so where do you find that universality where do you find that sense of solidarity I like Slavoj Žižek I still do I don't care I know he's not cool and hasn't been cool for a decade I don't care I like him. I think he's smart. One of the things that he said that I think was particularly apt is that we have for so long, ever since the Enlightenment, tried to find universality in the positive, right? The traits that we all share. Everyone shares a human spirit to overcome difficulties. Uh Everyone shares a desire for growth. Everyone loves their family. And well, you know, what we discovered is what those things mean to different people who are subject to different historical outcomes. Well, those things mean different things to different people. So the the solution that Zizek proposes is to locate universality in a lack, a sense of voidness. So, it's more Buddhist almost. It's a universal suffering. Well, it, it's, it's an inadequacy. The inadequacy of our specific life worlds uh, and our specific identities, I should say, to be less jargony, like the, the impossibility of locating the universal in our identities as men or women or white or black, right? That the inadequacy of who we are to bridge the gap that separates us from our neighbor, that is the condition of universality that we can begin to build solidarity on. But and I like that. I like it too, but you know, that, that in some ways it's a version of what the Jewish mission was. Ooh, right? tell. So, well, Jews were always, you know, when, once, once Jews got kicked out of the Holy Land or whatever, they were basically strangers everywhere they went. So Jews came up with and then fought for universal justice because a world that has universal justice will have justice for the Jews. And it made sense. So there were sort of there were sort of two ways to do it. Either we defend our tribe somehow mm-hmm. or if we have no we have no home base, we have no place to defend, then we've got to create a world that welcomes all immigrants, yeah. that welcomes all kinds of people. And the problem is though that this universalism, which I guess it kind of peaked in maybe the Enlightenment. Universal justice is a really tricky meme. And I feel like now universal justice is understood as that sort of George Soros Zionist plot to have America be invaded by Mexicans or something, that it's looked as a a violation of the sanctity of the sort of more uh, land-based fascist groups. Right. I think there's an alternative to that, though. I think there's an alternative political uh, agenda that speaks to universality, that doesn't speak to, uh, that doesn't produce the same um, grab bag of anxieties that you just described. And I think it is found in the Sanders campaign, which is if we develop universal programs that offer universal coverage, the people who have suffered historical wrongs, the groups that have suffered historical oppression, will disproportionately benefit. But people from the hegemonic group who, for whatever reason, have been deselected and left behind aren't going to be left behind any further to right. fester in their resentment and to become Pepe's on 4chan, uh, you know, people stockpiling guns in their in their parents' house. But the interesting thing is, though, the people who object to that are the last people who've gotten in object to letting everyone in. So now you see, like, some unions don't like Bernie Sanders because they're like, hey, wait a minute, we just fought for health care. 
It took 10 years, 20 years, and now you're just going to give it away? Or, gosh, you know, I struggled to pay for my education. Now you're just going to forgive people's education loans? So finally, you know, Bernie just finally said, um, well, the health care you have under my plan, I promise, will be better than what you got from the union. But if you're a union boss, you don't want to hear that because then what do people need your union for? What do you need Jimmy Hoffa for if you're giving everybody health care and good wages? Well, you need they need you to negotiate better wages and longer vacations right. and longer smoke breaks. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, that, like, yeah. it's yeah, tricky. I mean, people feel like it's, it's unjust. It's a handout. Oh, well, to, and know. modest social democracy isn't going to solve isn't going to solve the conditions of suffering that are so common to human existence. It's it's not going to solve this unquenchable hunger and desire for some object that's always just over the horizon. And no matter what we acquire, we're always we always feel like it eludes us. Yeah, modest social democracy. And you think that's universal? That. That's not just that's not just capitalism. You think that's more fundamental? Well, that's the question because we don't we don't live outside of capitalism, right. so we can't and we can't know until we do. Kind of hope it would be a, a condition of capitalism, but. Then mm, there's a part of me that thinks it's tied into sex drive and things like that, uh, and so it, it might be a little more um, fundamental and deeply rooted. But we won't know. And 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 you know, the the promise of total and complete satisfaction shouldn't be what justifies modest social democracy. We can continue to pursue that after we ensure that poor men and women uh, of all all races aren't dying for lack of medical care. Right. You know, we can we can raise the baseline uh, before we we begin our quests for for you know whatever pipe dream we ch- we're chasing. I mean, the interesting thing for me about the Bernie Sanders campaign is a. Uh, you know, I was basically, a, I'll take any of them kind of a Democrat at this point. You know, certainly, you know, I thought that Warren and Sanders were both policy-wise had the same sort of good things. But as MSNBC in particular started to pick on Bernie mm-hmm. in really uh, unfair ways. And as I saw online on Twitter, people saying anyone who's supporting Bernie is a Bernie bro and that we're somehow assaulting Warren supporters online. And I felt almost radicalized by it. I became more of a Bernie supporter the more I felt like establishment media was unfairly turning on him or when the the security people come out with, oh, you know, Russia is trying to help Bernie win, which I still haven't seen the evidence for what that is and how they mean that. What do they really mean? I would believe that they're fomenting Bernie-like memes in order to get people upset, in order to get, you know, Warren people to hate Bernie people and Bernie people to hate. I could see them doing that. But um once I see, you know, the day before the Nevada primary, MSNBC and CNN all coming out with this and saying, oh, and Bernie knew for a month that Twitter hashtag Bernie knew becomes the number one thing. I'm like, I understand how Trump feels now. I actually had not sympathy, but empathy, I guess, for Trump of like, oh, I get it. It really is an organized disinformation campaign. 
or an emergent one, right? You know, I, th- I think it, it's more symptomatic of the interests of of the people who are participating in that kind of bad news and opinion sharing. What you just described is a very well established category of radicalization. Mm. It's called group isolation. It happens all the time when a group that already self identifies as somewhat separate and outside the mainstream or somewhat besieged receives messages that reinforce that self-perception as being besieged and outside the mainstream. Uh, There's a tendency to close ranks and to radicalize and for opinions to become more hardened and uh, move further in the direction uh, that they were moving in the first place. Right. So when I think, oh, is Russia doing something? I would think that's the thing they would be trying to do. In other words, the people that are falling prey to the Russia conspiracy, if anything, were the mainstream media people who in a trigger-happy way, needed to report something that then radicalizes hundreds of thousands of people who wouldn't have been radicalized otherwise. Yeah, I think so, too. And, and you know, I work at American University, so there's a lot of uh, Fed types who right. come Right, this and, is a Washington, D.C.-based... Yeah, uh, university. It's where I teach. Um, it's where um, I'm completing my Ph.D. Uh, it's where I work. And so there's a lot of Fed types who come and go. And CIA and people who get educated CIA there. CIA people, and, yeah. uh, one of my good friends is an Army intelligence, a professor at the Army Intelligence University. And what they say is is basically what you said, is that Russia doesn't really pick ponies. They just want chaos. They just want to sow strife and discord. And, you know, you favor candidate A to do that, you favor candidate B. It actually makes more sense to put out messages for all the candidates, but messages that are hostile and conflicting with each other and are going to foster that kind of fighting. Um, but, yeah, I kind of agree with you. Like, the Russia doing info operations, as they call it, in our elections, it's real. It happened. Uh, this happens right. all the time. Every country does it, or at least every sufficiently well-resourced country does it. We do it to a phenomenal extent all around the globe. Every single election that we feel we have an interest in, we do something of this sort. So, you know, Russian interference, I would call it at most a second-tier condition affecting our absolutely dysfunctional political system at the moment. Right. Uh, it's easy it, to blame them. But, you know, I, yeah. I read a lot of Aaron Matei. Uh-huh. He was on the show. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, he writes yeah, for the nation, basically, yeah. saying everyone keeps over, you know, overstating and overestimating Russia's influence. And I would agree, you know, if you really want to look at what's anything that's having influence, it's it's the, the media environment that we're living in. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, which I guess, you know, a lot of people now we all know that these platforms are reaching down into your brainstem to stimulate a, a fight or flight response and get your cortisol up. And what do you expect, you know, to be the result of that? And and the way that they're engineered, the way that hyperlinks just work cognitively, it's kind of turning us all into schizophrenics. It's giving ordinary people the ability to juxtapose uh, inconsistent and incoherent points side by side with the absolute greatest of ease. And in one sense, that's one of the great human abilities, right, is to engage with paradox, is to hold on to, you know, cognitive dissonance can be fun. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Hey, yeah. And this was one of the promises of the Internet, you know, right. to circle back to Robert Anton Wilson and Tim Leary. They understood this. They understood that this is kind of psychedelic opportunity where you can blend a, an increased presence of paradox and contradiction and serendipity along with increased 
pattern recognition in a way that allows you to think new thoughts and develop and blaze new pathways through your brain. I think one of the problems is that this technology has been harnessed to our current just runaway capitalist moment. And so it's been it takes on the characteristics of that runaway capitalism, which is predatory and hostile and always reaching and grasping and cruel and exclusionary. I look at you as a you're a, a brain and heart that's a decade or two younger than, than mine. Are you having trouble maintaining coherence? I struggle with it. Yeah. I, I struggle with really more than anything, though, I struggle against groupthink. This is something that I've really noticed as I've transitioned, you know, from the environment here at Queens College to the environment at American University. There are different epistemological expectations and there's different ideological expectations that come with whichever environment you're in. And it's really, really hard not to unconsciously tailor your perceptions and your data gathering and your analysis so as to not cause too much friction within whatever ideological setting that you find yourself in. As far as the contradictions and the schizophrenic qualities of online. I, I think I do okay with that. Uh, you know, maybe it is from that Robert Anton Wilson training that I received when I was 22 uh -huh. years old. The, yeah, the ability to, to say, maybe. Right. Maybe. Maybe I, you know, maybe I am plugged into a virtual reality machine and my organs are being harvested as we <laughs> speak. On a very fundamental level, I can never know that that's not happening. So you just got to get on with your life. Right. That's funny. I was just thinking the other day that William Burroughs was right. We ended up, I mean, this is, people say, oh, do you think we're living in Huxley or Orwell? And I think, I think we're living in Naked Lunch. Oh, <laughs> that is brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. It's a combination of just schizophrenic incoherence along with systems of brutal control. That's literally, that are sucking the life energy out of us. You yeah. know, the, the precious syrup and milk of our, of our souls is being, even if it's just our data, it's, you know, rendering us flaccid. Yeah. Yeah. Huxley and Orwell were the, you know, they were the great uh, authors, dystopians of the 20th century. But the 21st century, it's it's Burroughs, it's J.G. Ballard, and it's Philip K. Dick. Those are the three, those are the three ones who really saw the future. But they were crazy. All three of them. Yeah, we're crazy now. <laughs> right. But that's the thing. The mental state that we're in yeah. is like Philip K. Dick. It is like that. What's that movie? A Scanner Darkly, where Robert Downey Jr. finds out he's the cop investigating himself. Yeah, that, that's a, a really perfect parallel to the way that our, our data circulates with our actions online so that we're always kind of chasing our own behavior mm -hmm. and trying to replicate it or being prompted, I should say, to replicate it without, without even realizing it. Yeah, we're always trying to pick up the scent uh, of who we are through these, these digital stimuli. Right. So do you do things for health now, like for basic health? Do you meditate or do yoga or anything? Are you too involved in your dissertation now to I, think about it? Uh, it's so embarrassing. I went from being in the best shape of my life when I was here at Queens College to being currently in the worst shape of my life, hands down, no question. Uh, yeah, when I, I so I'll, I'll say, you know, before I, I ran and I lifted weights and I meditated a little bit and, you know, I did, I did a few little Robert Anton Wilson exercises and tricks from time to time 
just to keep in touch uh, with that sense of play and wonder. But nowadays, my life is devoted to living in these online spaces where these violent extremists congregate and talk to one another and develop their ideological commitments and their sense of identity. And I hope to be able to get <laughs> get back to meditating right. and, and playing But playing you're looking magic. at them with, a, with an eye towards just chronicling what's happening or toward eventually preventing them from falling down into these into these kind of tragic holes no definitely preventing uh, I've been working um, with a, a great scholar dr. Cynthia Miller Idris uh, at American University we've been launching uh, a lab called the polarization uh, and extremism research and innovation lab it's also the acronym spells peril that's a lab that it works to develop interventions that address these potentially at-risk people. You know, the people who are already far down the rabbit hole, the, the people who are hardcore, there's only so much you can do at a certain point. They've already made their commitment. But there's a huge population of people who circulate in and out of the fringes who we can reach. And look, I don't need them to believe in what I believe. I don't need them to, to be good social Democrats and, you know, listen to 80s hardcore and 90s hardcore rap and like Robert Anton Wilson. I just need them not to shoot up Walmart. But I can even feel, as I was saying, I can feel some of the tug toward radicalization myself. I mean, my good friend, we're talking about, you know, Walter Kern, who's been on this show. And, you know, he's been talking to me and tweets a lot about QAnon and Jeffrey Epstein. And there is a moment when that you kind of get blackpilled, you know, and, you know, white is black and black is white. And it's like, oh, wow, Hillary really is going to come in the race. They are going to poison Bernie. They They kill people. And then I think, well, Wow, now I'm kind of, at least for those 10 minutes, I was believing everything. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that this digital technology can do because it can be so immersive while at the same time so schizophrenic. You know, something else, though, is that the gap between the history that you get in high school and even to a lesser extent, college, versus actual American history, or the gap between the way the news is reported on MSNBC versus what's actually happening in the world is so vast. That's why it's so funny. You know, I say uh, in the Team Human book and on the back cover, you know, I got this whole find the others, find the others. And I make the statement as if, you know, joining Team Human is as easy as, oh, just find the others. It could be really hard to find. Yeah. People who are willing to sit and talk or just be or anything. It is a, a really scary, lonely world out there for people, particularly, you know, urban. But I imagine, um, you know, the country is scary, too. Yeah, the country, the suburbs. But there, there are also there are economic conditions that are separating us from people. And we got to look at those and we have to address those. Our, we're overscheduled just to make ends meet. We're tired. We're sick because we don't have adequate health care and we don't have good food and we don't have the time to acquire and prepare good, healthy, whole food. Right. And that then leads to you know, neurological changes. Absolutely. You don't eat, eat the right changes. food. Yeah. yeah. And, and all that prevents us from being able to, to just be in the same space. I think also the way that our desires are hyper-stimulated and hijacked tend to inject this fear of exploitation even into the most anodyne and normal social interactions. And right. we got to find a way 
to get over that. I know. And then we're scared to go to a church or a synagogue or anything because yeah. they are trying to program me into submission. And yeah. often they are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I talk about it a lot, how more students each semester bring me that note in the first day of class saying, uh, you know, please excuse Johnny from class participation because he's got social anxiety and all, you know, until I'm waiting for the day when it's everybody. And then how do I how do I teach a class at yeah. that point? Well, what do you do if someone brings you that note? I say whatever you can, but please don't feel like this means you can't participate. At least be open to the possibility. You know, I won't call on you if your hand's not up. Yeah. Consider it. Yeah. You know, what the heck? It's hard, though, you know, because it's a it's a disability. But, you know, when I think about it, I realize, oh, it's because, you know, K through 12, we're not doing any of that. We're not having them look at their iPads rather than engage with other people in the room. So we lose that. I mean, I know I mean, I don't have official Asperger's or anything, but I have to stay aware of the fact I got to make eye contact with the people I'm with. I mean, really? We're all getting... I think of you as someone, as someone who has excellent eye contact. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> good. Well, particularly when I'm in front of a class or something, you know, I can sort of look up to the ceiling while I'm thinking about something and, and I don't want to be that professor who's yeah. in his own head, you know? Yeah. yeah, I find that when I'm looking across a room full of students, I, I try to make eye contact with each one individually at some point, you yeah. know, from, from week to week. And yeah, they, you, every now and then you, you do catch a, a sense of discomfort. I just want to take them aside and say, no, no, I just, I just want to be speaking to you for that 10 seconds that I'm looking at you. I just yeah. want to be speaking to you then. And what are, what are you driving towards? I know you got to do a dissertation, which is on all this stuff, I guess, on radicalization. Uh, my dissertation is on lone wolf manifestos and lone wolf media use and the way that the media technologies they use to radicalize themselves and write their manifestos shape their ideological commitments and their identities. Wow. So you got a little media ecological there. You'll have to cover that up for your uh, readers. Uh, but yeah, I, I'd love to turn that into a book. You know, I, I, right now the dissertation looks at Anders Breivik, the Norwegian mass killer, and and Brenton Tarrant, uh, the Christchurch mm. uh, killer from about a year back. It's interesting because um, I interviewed uh, Joel Finkelstein, who runs the oh, National yeah. Contagion Research Institute. Sure. And he basically says that now because of the Internet and, you know, 8chan, 8kun, 4chan, that there's no such thing as a lone wolf. That if they are doing it for the lulls, if they're doing it and posting what they're going to do, and they're like, my brothers, post this, I'm going to live stream it then they have a community, albeit a strange one, but they have an online community that they're coming from. Yeah, I mean, he's not totally wrong. There's value in being able to distinguish between certain categories of terrorists, like whether you have a hierarchical terrorist group like Al-Qaeda or a networked terrorist group like some of the white supremacist groups in the 1980s versus someone who plans their attack alone and acts alone during their attack. Those are useful taxonomies to draw a distinction between. Um, but look, no one is, for as alienated and isolating as our society is, nobody operates in a social vacuum. So Finkelstein is right that there isn't a, a pure lone wolf type who, well, maybe Ted Kaczynski. Right. But even he might That was have before been. the net, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if I do turn my dissertation into a book, I'd love to, I'd love to include a chapter on Kaczynski. You um, have to. I yeah. mean, because that's really the best of the Lone Wolf Manifestos. Hands down. 
I mean, because it turned out to be pretty much just true. He was right. He was right about a lot of things. It's well written. And, you know, you want to get media ecological. The One of the reasons why it's so well written is because it was written on a typewriter alone in a cabin with a limited amount of paper. He couldn't go through a, a ton of paper. He lived very Spartan lifestyle. So he had to think through his arguments very methodically and then type them up very carefully. Mm-hmm. And so that's why the manifesto has this kind of clockwork quality to it where the pieces fit really well. If you compare that to Anders Breivik's manifesto, he just takes a bunch of blogs he likes, slaps them together, and then writes fan fiction where he pretends that he's a a Templar knight. Uh, It it really is like this weirdly flattened picture of the internet around 2010. It's like he gathered up the internet in 2010, put it all in a line, saved it as a PDF, and, you know, used it to justify mass murder. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, Postman wrote on a typewriter, too, even after the age of computers, because it's how his brain worked. And his his writing is very clear and exactly. crisp and um, It light. forces a kind of a discipline. I mean, so many people. My problem with the computer has always been that the computer has convinced people that they can write simply because they can type. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, yeah. we can all talk, but we're not Martin Luther King, yeah. you know? No question. Leave the writing to the writers. God damn it. <laughs> Authors have authority. Yeah. You know? I mean, anyone can write a book these days, but it feels like that. Yeah, well, it's true. Anyone can. Right. But not anyone Not everyone should. should. Not that they shouldn't contribute to society in their way, but they got to find their thing. Yeah. So you're going to do the dissertation, and then what do you think about like your kind of career, like being a professor person and write more stuff, or like go you know work for, uh, be a social worker and help young men <laughs> yeah well the we're the lab uh the peril uh lab at au is taking off it's it's going to be around for a while oh cool uh i think that i will be working there probably for the foreseeable future actually uh, a friend of mine uh, and i are going to be starting our own podcast where we look at themes in books about ecological restoration a sort of an antidote to dystopia we're looking at books about what happens when we solve climate crisis that's what i've been thinking about too i mean i'm working on now a graphic novel or, or a series, I'm not sure which it is yet, which I guess would, would, would loosely count as solar punk. No, oh, cool. You know, and solar punk is, you know, they use it from solar energy, but I think really what I want to do is create aspirational futures that are not high-tech, sci-fi, post-apocalyptic or anything, yeah. but just how do we just live? So it's sort of a, a scaled-down approach where people are doing simpler, easier. I think that's the life that a lot of people are looking for, sort of a a patchwork life where some aspects are more organic and neighborhood or small town focused. Yeah, a little like kind of walking dead without the zombies, yeah, you know? And and some <laughs> and still some rudimentary Wi-Fi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, or some yeah, but rudimentary not always on, not everybody TikToking into their iPhones. It's the difference between a cup of tea and a big old hit of crystal meth. And as monkeys, though, 
who will hit the orgasm button until they die. Oh, yeah. And with multi-trillion dollar corporations more than willing to watch us do that. Yeah. Um, we're in a really tricky place if we want to try to unwind our digitally addictive society. I, and I don't know how to even begin go, going about doing it. I think imagining and modeling new ways of being social outside of that hypercharged online atmosphere is, is what we have to do. And the, it's so urgent, it's so pressing. The time is so short. And it's not necessarily a going back. You know, it's what people keep thinking that I'm talking about going back to some medieval utopia. It's like, no, no, no. It's, you know, retrieving some of what we've lost, but going forward to something a whole lot more uh, stable and sustainable. Yeah. Well, think. did you like Star Trek The Next Generation? I did, but I'm a nerd. Well, sure. You know, I don't expect people to (laughs) run out and watch it if they haven't already. But anytime they would return to Earth, you know, anytime like Picard had shore leave, you would see this vision of the future where he would be on his family farm. You know, just doing agriculture that was good for his soul. But they still had communicators. They still had food synthesizers. Mm -hmm. They still had rocket ships. I think that's a future that we can dream of. And I guess the value of dreaming of that future is we end up at such risk of leaving behind what's important in order to get just the rocket or just the, you know, replicator. Yeah. You know, you can't get replicators in order to save our food future. We still got to save the topsoil. Yeah. Looking at the future, which I tend to try not to do, can you bring the real world optimism? I experience optimism emotionally and pessimism intellectually. Intellectually, I see how desperate our straits are, but there's something in my heart that makes me hopeful and makes me feel like we're going to make it. I can't explain why that is because explaining that requires intellect and requires logic, and my intellect and my logic tells me that uh, it's unlikely. But I I feel like what's in my heart, that hope, is stronger and more likely to be true. I can't give you a reason to hope, but hope is there. It's available. Yeah, I feel the same way, you know, that, you know, just as I look at Torah and religious texts, I'll say, look, the beauty of Torah is not that it recounted history. It's that it's what's happening now. It's what's always happening. And I feel the same way about kind of our fate. It's not about the timeline. It's not about our future history. It's about our comportment. You know, our comportment is everything. And that goes on. That's infinite. You know, whatever is going to happen to this civilization at this time, there is something greater. Uh, there's some other human spirit that is that feels much like a much more timeless question of approach than result. There, there's a story from uh, sometime in the Middle Ages, I think, and maybe it's apocryphal, but they were holding court And they were, you know, writing edicts and figuring out grain receipts and things like this when there was an eclipse. And everyone looked at one another and they said, oh, goodness, is this the end of the world? And the king says, well, get some candles. He said, why? He said, well, if it's the end of the world, we're going to go out working. (laughs) We're going to go out doing the business of running our kingdom. And I I think that if we think of our kingdom as a kingdom of humanity Mm -hmm. and a kingdom of mutual caring and, and love for ourselves and love for other people, I think we 
whether we're facing the end of the world or the end of democracy or the end of global society, let's just keep doing the work of loving. Let's. (laughs) Thank you, Brian Hughes. Thank you for being on Team Human. Oh, man, I've, I've been here since day one. Thanks for being on Team Human. Our guest today was radicalization expert Brian Hughes. You can find out more about Brian and links to his latest work at teamhuman.fm. Thanks to everyone at Medium, as well as everyone listening through our terrestrial radio partners, including X-Ray in Portland, Oregon, KXRC in Durango, Colorado, and KSPC in Claremont, California. We're hoping for more radio stations, and we give the show for free. So if you have a community or a college station that might want to join Team Human, please connect us through team at teamhuman.fm. Thanks, everyone, for all the email and offers of support. We're working hard to get back to everyone, and we appreciate everything you're doing. See you next week. Stay safe, stay hydrated, stay human. Team Human is edited by Luke Robert Mason and produced by Josh Chaptelin. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.